Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. We are in the Torah portion of uh, Teruma today. Uh, Teruma is uh, the, the offering, which is more specifically the lifting up portion. It is, starts out in Exodus chapter 25 and continues on through Exodus 27 verse 19. Uh, this portion obviously covers the basic furniture items as well as the the general uh, tabak, the Mishkan, of, of what God, uh, God had commanded them to make, in general appearance. Um, as you note, there's a lot of dimensions in here, and I'll be honest, it is not humanly possible to accurately replicate what is described here with words alone, because it's not enough information. Now, there are lots and lots of ideas. It could look like this, a lot of interpretations. There is, it is not humanly possible to recreate this. There's a reason why God kept repeating himself, according to what I showed you on the mountain. <laughs> because we see the whole word of pictures with a thousand words. Well, we have a couple thousand pictures that you would need to make this. <laughs> and we don't have nearly enough words to describe it. So it is any man's interpretation or belief on how this thing is supposed to look and its general function. There's an artist's concept or interpretation of what it may have looked like. Um, it, you can have general ideas and general descriptions, but they are just strictly general ideas. Um, any comments or questions for this Torah portion? Things that I can answer for you before, because there's certain things I won't be talking about today, and certain, in particular, mostly the, the dimension of the, the, the tabernacle I want to be discussing, like covering other topics. Uh, yes, Larry. My almond tree is in full bloom right now. Your almond tree is ready? <laughs> That's good. Nice and full bloom. Not fruiting yet, yeah. It's the time of year, it'll bloom pretty quick, yeah. It lasts a long time. It takes a while for it to fully, fully, fully ripen. Any comments or questions about this? Uh, yes, Deborah. The attention to details, like the numbers, 10 curtains, uh, so many of the, you know, even though it's so not how much as it looks like, but those, God is always deals with numbers, so I feel like something else is going on. And also is, um, you know, God is that in heaven, because he says, you know, what he, he makes... What they make on earth is in heaven. So is there a, a, a place like this there? So um, in the long and short of it, yes and no. <laughs> it was. Meaning, no, not that it was, that um, according to what Moses saw, he would have seen what God's courtyard, so to speak, looked like. What, ha- what, God's, what, what heaven looks like, so to speak, as far as the amount of which God allowed Moses to see was what was displayed there in heaven as far as what Moses could see. Um, the actual physical gold, the physical silver, and the physical wood, those aren't in heaven. Those are physical objects that are down here on earth, obviously. So the physical thing was not there, but what Moses did see, he is attempting to recreate as best he can down here, um, whatever God chose to show him. The details behind what specifically every item looked like exactly it's not possible to know. Um, there is, uh, we'll discuss it with the prophets a little bit about this topic. 
regarding what is in heaven and what isn't, and what matters, what does not matter in some of these details. So hopefully we get to some of that today. Uh, as far as what Moses saw, I, my personal opinion, he saw something that cannot necessarily be duplicated here on earth. But he says something that he, that he was supposed to try to mimic in some way here on earth. And I say that because obviously there's other examples throughout our Bibles of God reusing those symbols up there that the other prophets get to see later on in time, like the cherubim, for example, are obviously heavily used. Um, so we have symbols of what they are, but not the actual thing. The object down here that Moses sanctifies and sets aside and Aaron has to purify every year, all kind of stuff, those are still just physical objects. They're not flesh and blood, they're not alive, but they're just metal and wood and fabric. That's mostly all they are. And if we understand that's what they are, and they're nothing more than that, to put something more upon it, that's God's position, not our position. So God decides whether something is greater or something is less than, than what it may be, not us. So we make something that is mimicking, to look like, to remind us, but that's all it is. It's a look like. It's not the real thing. Right, the real thing is up there, not down here. Even though we can't touch that thing up there, we can touch what's down here. This thing isn't real, even though it feels to us, it feels real. Because <laughs> it can hurt me if I run across it. But there's a distinction between the two of them. So Moses, in my opinion, is seeing things up in the heaven that is not quite what he can duplicate down here, but he's trying to duplicate what's down here. So, yeah. <laughs> so numbers, right. but it comes to numbers crunching and the different numbers being used. Um, you can interpret lots of different numbers, obviously, for different reasons. And some of them are very easy to understand and see, and some are a little bit more complicated to try to figure out exactly what they mean by. Um, because God does not do things arbitrarily, I don't believe God arbitrarily chose numbers. For us, this should be this could be five, six, seven, eh, about this length. But he didn't do that. He chose a certain number of cubits as his measurement, and we can debate the length of a cubit. That's not really relevant necessarily. But and the quantity which was used, and so in the general shape. So God chose shapes on purpose. So I would it would imply that his courtyard, what he has in heaven, whatever it looks like, more precisely, I don't know, is based also on the same number sequence that Moses brought down here. Because although I can't make a physical object look like it does in heaven, I can certainly count how many there are. So I may not get the exact shape or look right, but I can see that God had 50. That means I make 50. So the, the numbers are probably very accurate in what their functionality is. I don't think Moses miscounted anywhere. When it comes to the exact appearance, that's debatable. Does that make sense? But the, the, the numbers are, do appear to be relevant. God does not do things arbitrarily. Right. Any questions or comments we can talk about regarding this, this, this portion so far? Yes, Anne. Um, I think the thing is uh, about the mercy seat and about how God is, says that it says that even the, the very heavens could not contain the Lord, and yet the Lord chooses to dwell into this tiny area under under the mercy seat. And uh, the other thing that I thought of was um, when uh, later on, 
when Ichabod happens and he leaves the temple, I mean, then you realize his presence is pretty immense. I mean, you know, he comes out of the mercy seat. From what I understand, you know, it, this tremendous... The glory Lord of departs it as his presence departs name means. the temple yes. and his presence leaves Israel at that point. Right, it does. And so um, just the mercy of... the the humbleness of our God, you know, he's, he could do anything, you know, he chooses to dwell in this tiny space. And you know how we get like claustrophobic, you know, if, if, you're, if you're in an elevator and it's power out, <laughs> you're yeah. stuck, you know, and, uh, but he's not, he's not stuck. No, That's not stuck. the thing. So there's, um, there's lots of details regarding this, which we'll, we'll probably, I intend to get into regarding uh, the ark itself and the nature of it and what God did and various uh, strange ideas that have come up over the last you know, couple thousand years. Um, and I'm going to cover all of them, but a few of them, just to, generally, to give us a better understanding of what God was trying to relay, not to us today necessarily, but relate to the Israelites back then 3,000 years ago, well, 3,500 years ago almost 4,000, in that general ballpark. Um, but about 3,500 years ago, what they saw and understood with the words that they would see and what God was communicating at that time. Because it helps, uh, in my mind, personally clarify a few strange concepts that have developed over the past uh, probably, yeah, about 2,000 years, roughly. No, no, you didn't. I just, I just put it, the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, there's, there's a, few, a few concepts that are, that are not uh, terribly accurate. Any comments or questions about the, the, about the, uh, the store portion so far? All right. Let's go ahead and begin. We're going to cover a few basic details uh, before we go into any, any great d- depth about, uh, about, about any particular item. So, of course, obviously, we have uh, there's the, the, the basic furniture components. Uh, in, in, in This is not describes all of them, of course. It describes a few of them. It describes, obviously, the basic, basic th- things and such. This here is a, I'm just doing a child sketch, so to speak, of, of the profile of arcs. We'll be using this in a moment. But uh, in this detail, we have obviously the, the different components of the arc being de- described. We have the components of, the, of the, the table being described for the bread. We have the components of the menorah being described. And we have the components, obviously, of the main altar, the animal altar being described. The thing that's not described, of course, the incense altar is not included in this description yet. It's later on. Uh, God will get there in a moment. And then we have the overall tabernacle itself described. So these are obviously dimensions and functionality. They have their purpose and they have their task. Uh, we'll just briefly hit them. We'll come back to them in more detail in a moment. Um, the first functionality I want to point out in this, in this Torah portion is God's telling them to make a sanctuary that he may dwell with them. As uh, Anne correctly pointed out, that's a strange concept. What does God need a sanctuary for? Where does he dwell? Well, the whole earth is his, is it not? So is there only one place or one thing he needs to dwell in? Well, theoretically, no, there isn't. He doesn't actually live in this tent nor did he live in Solomon's temple, nor did he live in this little ark or on top of it. He doesn't live there. That these, these are functional t- tools used to help for people to understand the idea of God. And we'll get to the, what the purpose of it, which is which this ark is supposed to be for in the sanctuary and how it is used. 
anyway, so the idea was that God would dwell with them. He doesn't actually dwell in their midst. We already demonstrate, actually he demonstrates himself in multiple times at the Torah that when God dwells with you, what happens to you? You die. <laughs> you can't dwell with God. Why? Why not? Because you're a flesh and blood thing and you don't do things right. So you die. So if God's saying, I want to build a sanctuary so I can dwell with you, you would perish. So what does he have to do? He doesn't actually dwell with you. He just dwells in a small area <laughs> that's separate from you so that you don't die. Because nothing, no, no offense to humans, we cannot accomplish righteousness whereas God cannot be near or next to what is unrighteous because that would, def- that would change his definition of, of what he is. Can God be unrighteous? And you know something by its company. So if you do not understand whether God's righteous or not righteous, what company does he keep? What well, does he keep righteous people near him or unrighteous people? Neither. He keeps only righteous non-humans with him. We call them angels or, or spirits that he created. Humans, by definition, cannot be righteous. So humans cannot, by definition, dwell with God. It's just a catch-22. You're stuck. You can't do it. So this whole idea is that even though God says, I will dwell with them, he never actually dwells with them. What does dwell with them? The spirit that comes, that comes from him, but this tabernacle, the sanctuary, what lives in the sanctuary? A box. Yeah. <laughs> a box, a testimony in it. That's what lives in the sanctuary. He doesn't live there. This little ark, oh, granted, not this little, this is, this is a basic idea of what the ark would look like. I'm not, I may be an engineer, but I'm not a very good artist. So the basic idea of what an ark would look like, right? So inside this ark contains a few components. Now, we, we, we won't go through all of them yet because they come along as time goes on. But one of the basic things inside the ark, I'm going to, you know, the traditional shape, I, have, I highly, highly doubt. Tabernacle, the tablets look like that, but that's okay. <laughs> There's a reason to have little curves on top. But the idea of what's inside them is God's testimony. Now, I have a question for you. If I say, any one of you, don't do this, I'm just hypothetically speaking. Uh, what is your testimony? What is that? What, 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 what conjures up in your mind? What your personal testimony is, whether it's yours or, or hers or, or, or hers or his or hers or mine. What is my, what is, what, are, what is the testimony? What is it? When I came to, it's a declaration, isn't it? It's words you're saying identifies you or, or what, what, the, what your story is. However you got there, whether the sequence of events, the, the God worked, that's your testimony. How long does your testimony last? Think about it. Yeah. And then when you die, what happens? Your testimony is all lost in memory. Your children may or may not remember. Uh, the word, we're discussing this something unique. In God's testimony, what's unique about his? It lasts as long as he's alive. So what does his testimony mean? That means it, it never goes away. Unlike ours, ours can only live as long as we live or as long as we can declare it. We can't declare it anymore. No one can double check it. No one can ask a question about it because we're not around. We're dead. But in God's case, all testimony can be based upon what his, what his words were because he, he declared it. So in this box, it's supposed to contain his words, his testimony. Now, of course, we understand the whole nature of words later, but we'll, we'll get into that in, in, in a minute. So the functionality of the, of the sanctuary, the whole tent that's being made, made is 
its functionality is to house this thing, this box that contains God's testimony in it. So we're housing God's words. So we say when God says that I may dwell among them, what's actually dwelling among them? His words. His words are what's dwelling among them. It's a house that contains his words. So God's word's the ones that God, that's dwelling amongst people. He himself isn't. What, what object can possibly contain him? The heavens and the earth are his. He made them all. You can't contain him, but his words can be given and those will be contained inside the box. So then the whole the symbol of the box, it, it, the functionality of the, of the sanctuary is that box and his, his words. We'll get to more of this in a minute. Um, and the nature of this figure box, I'm not going to cover all the details of it. Uh, note I, my terrible sketch of cherubim. I've, no, no human knows what cherubim looks like. It's, it's, a, it's a thing. Uh, it is a, um, uh, some people argue, well, it's a man or it's a beast or whatever. It, we don't know. It could be a post. <laughs> whatever it is, it has wings apparently of some form. So you can draw them or sketch them however you want. It doesn't make much difference. What I do want to point out, uh, which what uh, Anne had mentioned, the English word in a lot of your Bibles uses the term mercy seat. That is probably the second worst translation you can choose for what that is. <laughs> I said second because I've heard of a worse one. But <laughs> the term mercy is not in this description at all. The term seat is not in this description at all. The idea or concept of a mercy seat, like a, like a chair where mercy is dispensed, is, for lack of a better term, bogus. It's, it's, it's a creation of, of, of English uh, words, English words to choose, choose to use it. And I can only speculate the reasons why, because the word actually... is the root word of Kippur. Yeah, have you ever heard of Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement? That's what it is. <laughs> so when you think of, you're reading Hebrews, you read this, it's, it's, it's Kippuret, actually, more specifically, the, the actual word being used for this cover. The idea is supposed to conjure up in your head atonement. That's a concept that you should be thinking about if you're a standard Israelite living through life, understanding what the concepts are. When I see this seat, it's actually atonement. So I look at a box, the box has atonement on top of it. That's the idea, the concept you should be thinking about as opposed to a mercy seat. Those are two different ideas. Because atonement, it's the idea of how, do you, how does one get atonement? Well, the day of atonement, how do you get it? How do you receive atonement? Well, we have the process of Leviticus 16 tells us. The whole blood of the goats, and they divide the goats up, and yada, yada, all this process. The sequence in which we have the day of atonement, that holy day. Well, if God's saying, I'm going to dwell, I'm not going to draw God. (laughs) A cloud. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm going to dwell above this thing, whatever it's supposed to look like. I'm going to hang out above this thing. And this is the one time a year you get to come in, they have the goat, you sprinkle the blood, there's the incense, yada, yada, all these things that happen. What am I doing? I'm always focusing my attention and my appearance, the, the high priest is, upon the atonement, the cover, the, the, the lid, the hat. And what's underneath the cover? God's testimony. So the idea of atonement is a concept that's supposed to come from a cover over God's words.
How do you receive atonement? Well, God's words are there, and God takes his, his cover, his atonement cover, he covers his words up. That's the idea of atonement. That's the concept of it. The whole atonement is to cover up your, your, your mistakes, cover up your, your, not your accidents, rather your purposeful mistakes. <laughs> things you did, you knew you shouldn't have done, but you did it anyway. Those things, that's the idea of covering it up. So we have this idea of this mercy seat is a strange concept in the entire Middle Eastern idea or philosophy or Jewish philosophy of God, even Messiah himself would that it's a strange concept. But in English, we use the term mercy probably because we don't want to remind ourselves of the Holy Days of Atonement, but that's just opinion. <laughs> because that implies that, well, there's something about this that I should be paying more attention to, but that's just my personal opinion as, as the reason why. But anyway, so the mercy seat is a strange idea, it is a traditional translation of the past almost thousand years, but it's not a strange concept in the nature of atonement is the actual idea behind being taught. Uh, yes, Anne. So the word mercy and in many parts of the scriptures that we hear the word mercy is no, not really no, kapoor? No. In, this, in the description of the Ark of the Covenant, the term mercy seat, neither of those two words exist in that description. They exist other places, in the, but I'll talk about here regarding the Ark. Yes, Timmy. Yeah, the, I have an English translation of the Septuagint of this verse, and it says, and you shall make a propitiary as a cover of pure gold, and then the length, two and a half cubits, and da-da-da. Right. So the Septuagint refers to it as a propitiary cover. Yeah, it, it, it's it, neither of which are, yeah. It, it's, it's still, it's a strange, the idea of a mercy seat, and that's anything against God having mercy. That's not the point of it. The point is that the seat that they should hear, this seat is not about mercy. It's about atonement. That's the idea of the seat and this concept of what this box is for. We'll come back to this shortly because this box uh, makes a second appearance later on in our discussion today. Uh, the next part, oh, just, I'm just covering some basics. We'll go back in detail in a minute because these basics are just stuff to get out of the way. Um, obviously, uh, the, 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 the bread, the table bread for the showbread, uh, the showbread, we, the people have debated that for what it looks like. We think of just a standard box, or sorry, box like a rectangular or squarish table, rectangular table. Um, the nature of the showbread itself, no one really knows for certain, but it's most likely, most likely an unleavened loaves of bread, most likely they're flat bread. Um, in the nature of showbread is a, the bread of surfaces, which means it has surface, but no depth, no interior. And we have, all of you have eaten matzah before, right? What's between matzah and leavened bread? the fluffy interior exists on leavened bread and there's no really fluffy interior on matzah. And this is the showbread of surfaces. The bread means, the, the means bread of surfaces. It means it has surface, but has no interior, which would imply it's matzah. That's the nature of the bread. So it's the bread that the, the, the table that he has there with the uh, six, or sorry, 12 loaves set in two rows, it's two rows of six, is most likely flat bread or flat bread with no, with no interior. It's just a surface bread only. I say most likely because you can't prove it. It's just, it's, it's just, it's probably what it was. And the next, last uh, uh, component, or two last two components we'll talk about a little bit about, uh, first, the, second, the altar itself, the animal altar, not the incense altar, of course, is made from copper. Lots of ways what that looks like. The mesh work, as mostly, if you look, if you get an opportunity to look at different descriptions of what the altar looks like, the mesh work being described in it, this animal altar, um, it appears that most people put them on the outside like a decorative item, 
but if you look at the description, it appears more accurately. It's like a, a meshwork, like you would a barbecue grill. It was if you barbecue grills right before, right? And they have the wire, you know, grit, grit, uh, griddle or the grate on top or the bottom. That appears to be what, what, what they made. They made a, a wire meshwork, the barbecue grill, so to speak, to the, the heat and ash could go through uh, to cook the animal. Think about the altar, it's fairly good sized. So every archaeological excavation of anywhere the temple has ever been, they notice there's always been a ramp. They make a ramp that goes up to a certain spot and the ramps go up there and then they stop where they think the animal altar existed. And they would do that because try lifting a cow off the ground that high. Okay, guys. <laughs> Hoist. It's a lot easier if you have a ramp that you all kind of walk up to it and just push it over. Um, so every archaeological excavation is ever done on any place the temple has ever, or the, te- the, the, the tent has ever stood, has always shown a long ramp. And they suspect that's probably the reason because God said, you will never approach my altar with steps. Right. You will always approach my altar with your loins covered and on a ramp. So what did they do? They built the altar, they put it, and they'd always take a ramp to go up to it. And that's how they approach the altar. Because that's how you get big animals I'm not sure the exact size of a steer. Sorry, you can't off a steer. Take it back. The steers, steers are unclean. Um, you can't, uh, a bull would be, I'm not sure its exact weight or size, but it's probably good sized uh, in, its, in its, I'm guessing, what, like 2,000 2, pounds, whatever, 1,000, whatever, so the range, 1,500 pounds. What's that? She would get tired if you had stairs. Yeah, <laughs> she would get tired. <laughs> Anyhow, um, and the last thing, it, it highlight, of course, is the menorah itself. I don't confuse menorahs with Hanukkiahs. Menorahs are seven. Hanukkiahs are nine. Well, eight plus one, it's nine. Uh, they, in, it, it, menorah is specifically seven. Now, in modern day Hebrew, uh, people, sorry, scratch that. I misspoke. In modern day Judaism, people interchange the term menorah as, as being just being a, a, a candlestick. That is modern-day Judaism. A modern-day Hebrew-speaking person would just think they're just interchangeable. Um, biblical Hebrew-speaking would obviously would say that's absurd. They're totally unrelated. <laughs> but uh, so in modern-day culture, they have them intermixed. And if you go, go to a like reform, uh, a Jewish person or non-practicing, they would not notice the difference because that's not uh, taught to them anymore. But if you ever got an opportunity to go to somebody who's a little bit more uh, observant, there is a distinction between Menorah and Hanukkah. As far as the Menorah having seven, pretty standard, it's either going to be the seven days a week or the seven commanded rest days uh, of the appointed times. Uh, you can debate which one it happens to be. It's, that's your opinion, because it's just opinion. So those are the basic cursory viewpoints of these concepts. Any questions about the basic stuff? We just covered the basic, what they are. Nothing really fancy about them. Yes, uh, Larry. The seat. I'm, I'm thinking that you mean this is the this is the basis of propitiation, essentially. Like you said, the, yeah, his yeah. word underneath and his presence above. Mm-hmm. It may be, the, 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 it's a, the the theological idea behind it is a theological idea, and we can debate the theological ideas. That's, a, that's a, but it's just a theological opinions. Yeah, it, it, the 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 the. The word choice, the Hebrew word choice, is supposed to conjure up the idea of atonement. That's the word choice. It's supposed to, that's the thought in your, high, your mind when you hear about the description. With your, whether you could speak Hebrew at the time or not, or if the once here it's read to you, 
when you hear those words, once a however many years it is, you hear those words, the idea is you should be thinking in your head. That is because these are Hebrew words to play on words of all forms of atonement. That's, that's the idea what you're thinking about when you hear the descriptive word. In English, we lose that because we're cover or seat and atonement don't sound alike. But in Kippur and Kippuret, they sound alike. So if you're looking at, <laughs> in Hebrew, your mind thinking, oh, similarly. But in English, we don't see that because the words don't sound similar to each other. That's the point. The idea is what you should be thinking about when you read or hear about the Ark and its cover. Anyway, um, those are the details of the, cover, of the basic on concepts. Now we'll go some details of, of some interesting stuff. <clears throat> Let's go back. So Exodus 25, the first part of the, of, of the chapter. It discusses the idea of a raised portion, the teruma. The name of this, this whole concept is teruma, the name of this, this Torah portion. I'll come back to this, this uh, drawing later, or maybe a better one later. I'm not sure. Teruma. The idea of teruma is uh, that we, 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 a lot of English will phrase it as a, as a set-aside or a raised-up portion uh, of, of an offering. The teruma, this, in this case, uh, this, this, the, the idea behind teruma, I'll try to sketch this out for you, hopefully it makes some sense. If it doesn't, I, I apologize. So let's say you have uh, a set of stuff. Here's stuff. I don't care what the stuff is. It could be uh, rocks, gold, sheep, clothing, hats, whatever. It's stuff. Okay, this is separate from tithe. Offerings and tithe are not related. Don't confuse them, okay? These are not related things. Of this stuff, say, God's so great. I'm going to set these parts of my stuff aside to him as an offering. A teruma is a set-aside part of this, not the rest of your stuff. So I've got these stuff, I've got these boxes of stuff. I'm making up, you know, I have seven of them there. I set two aside over here of making my nine boxes of stuff. I would take my teruma piece, I'm taking one of these two boxes, I'm taking one of them and say, okay, I'm lifting that up. Separate, it's special. That's the idea of teruma. It's not... I'm taking all my stuff and just setting part aside. No, it's the stuff that I set aside for God. What is the best of this? The most ideal stuff of this. And it doesn't matter what the ideal stuff is. If I say I set aside all these things, and you know what? The stuff over in this box is kind of mediocre. So this stuff looks prettier. That it looks prettier stuff or is more valuable stuff. That's the part I'm going to Truma, the, 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 the raised up portion, it, it elevates itself above all the stuff I set aside for God. All right, that's the idea of Truma. Um, in this commandment, it's, it, it's an interesting commandment. As God points out in verse 2 of 25, it says that uh, from every man whose heart, uh, whose heart motivates him, you shall take my portion. So this is not a command instruction that you will take aside the prettiest stuff or the best looking stuff or the, what you set aside. Because you are not a Levite. If you're a Levite, they're commanded to. You're just an ordinary Joe. No offense, Joe. Uh, you're an ordinary person. <laughs> Whatever that's set aside, you have, you're setting it aside, and God's saying you, you are choosing to, in your heart, to set this aside as an extra special part that you're giving over to, to me. That it is within your heart. 
Now we get this idea of uh, uh, this, um, this, this special part because there's a problem that shows up later on in Israel's history. Eventually, the tabernacle of the temple is destroyed. Eventually, it doesn't exist anymore. That's what happens, right? We hear about that. We read about the story. What happens is it gets wall wiped out. Today, of course, it's long since been destroyed. Now, Hosea covered this problem because he was dealing with the Samaritans of Samaria, not Samaritans, just Samaria. He was warning the people, hey, there will be a time which Samaria will be dead. The nation will be dead. The country will be dead. The city will be dead. There will be no place to go. And you're done. See, so he addressed this problem. Now, his methodology of addressing it um, is interpreted lots of different ways. I uh, will give you two of the most common interpretations of what he's saying. Uh, you can choose one or, or make up your own. It's your choice. Um, in Hosea chapter 14, it's Hosea here, it's somewhere hidden near Joel and Amos. All right, so Hosea 14, which is the most common. The, oh, Hosea, Hosea, Hosea with an H, Hosea chapter 14. Now, Hosea is, we're jumping in the middle of a law, actually toward the end, I should say in the middle, of a long spiel that Hosea is giving to the northern tribes of Israel. Because he's telling them all, you're all doomed to die because you're all basically terrible people in your own ways, um, and you're corrupt in every way you can think of. So in, Isaiah, in Hosea, sorry, 14, he gives an example and, uh, of, what, of, of the restoration, which God, now mind you, this is referred to specifically the northern tribes of Israel. This is not including Judah or anybody in the southern tribes. These are separate prophecies, separate groups of people unrelated to each other, all right? Meaning they're not really, they're biologically related, but they're, it's the messages for one group, not the other, all right? So in the tail end of this, uh, of, of his long spiel he gives, he points out Hosea 14, says, O Israel, return to Jehovah your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to Jehovah and say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. I will heal their backsliding and, they will, and I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branch shall spread. His beauty shall be like the olive tree. His fragrance like Lebanon. I'm, I'm going to stop there. It continues on and great stuff. So when I focus on the attention there, so Israel, the other tribes have essentially rejected God in every way you can think of. I think even his name too. <laughs> if, 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 if they, they had plastered his name on his too, they, they, they threw it out too. So I mean, you can imagine rejecting God, they did so. And so God's saying, that's not a problem. I'm going to just wipe you out and then I won't have to do with you more. But you have a problem. Those you wish to return to me, this is a scenario. How do we deal with this? Now in the verse two, it points out, says we should offer the sacrifices of our lips or basically our, our, our offerings. So, and it, of course, it discusses here that they will turn with your, your heart. So your heart is desiring to return to God, but you don't have the ability, the means, or technology to offer any offerings anymore. 
because you're not either in the, in the town anymore, in the region. You've been carried off to somewhere a bazillion miles away. And you can't go back anyway if you wanted to because they wouldn't let you. And or the tabernacle itself has been destroyed and you can't even go if you tried. So in this phrase, for we offer the offerings of our lips, is you will take your words and offer them in place of your offerings. That's one interpretation that you will use your prayers, the words that you speak to God as your offering you're giving instead of the actual animal offerings you would normally give. Now, mind you, you're supposed to give a certain portion is set aside as offerings. This is independent of tithe. And the, 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 the teruma, the, the of your heart that God commands Moses, that's the stuff that you've, you've set aside that's really good of the things you set aside. So I'm going to use my words as this, of the really good words, because my heart is choosing to God. I'm choosing the best of what I can say to offer up to my God. All right? That's one of the ideas or concepts or interpretations that Hosea is describing. The second most common one, which is a little bit, a hair more accurate in some ways, is that you will offer the sacrifice of your, of your lips, is that you will pay for the sacrifices with your lips. The same, similar idea is using your words to pay for the lack of the offering that you don't have. All right? Either way, you're still using your words to do the job. Now, use the words in this idea that it is from your heart that you're doing it, because they discuss, discusses that, and that God will love them freely. He will receive them and love them back in the response he's receiving from them. He will return the same response to them. That's the idea behind it. So that's the concept of what's happening here. I hope that makes sense, uh, because note in both Haggai and already point, Haggai 2 already points out that every single object you see belongs to God anyway, so if I give him a thing, whatever, he already owns it, right? So it doesn't matter whether it's pretty looking or ugly looking, functional or non-functional, he already owns it. So is the act of be giving it to him mean anything? Well, the object doesn't. It's just an object. So what does mean something? It's the physical desire to give. That's what he doesn't have. See, the object he already owns. It doesn't matter if pretty gold or ugly dirt makes a difference. He already owns it. The act of someone giving, however, he does not own. That's what we have. So we can give him whatever we value. It's just stuff. But the idea of giving it, that constant of giving, that's the part that he wants. It doesn't matter what the thing is. It's the idea of giving it. So hence he points out it is what their heart wills them, what is with your heart to give, the act of giving. And Messiah pointed the exact same thing out with the woman, that, with the, the two little mites she gave out in the parable. Or, or the, the parable, actually it was a story. He was actually making an observation. Uh, yes. Hey, Daniel, I just saw this. I thought this uh, added to what you were saying. Matthew twelve thirty four. it says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the, the last phrase was, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So in Messiah's observation, I forgot where it's, it's Mark like four, 15, 14, I forgot the exact location, where Messiah's hanging out near the temple area, 
and people are dropping off coins and money into the box, right? And rich people come by, average people come by, and this poor widow comes by and drops off, I have no clue what a mite is. It's some value of money, some very tiny amount. And he says, she gave more than the rest of them. And they go, oh, yes, I understand, yes, because she's so poor, and it was so much she gave compared to her, relative to her, her, her actual ownership, her actual income. Wait a minute. That would make no sense. It's the act of giving, remember? Does God not already own that coin? Yes. <laughs> Does he not already own every other coin ever put, made by anybody anywhere in the whole globe? Yes. So the act of giving, the, the, sorry, the object given relative to your personal income doesn't matter. It's the fact that you, having so little, chose to give. That is what mattered. That's hence she gave the most. She had so little and she chose to give it. Though she had very little to start with. It's the idea of her, her, her choosing, even though she is one in who is need of receiving, she chose to give it instead. It's the act of giving. That's what God's after. Was it? Luke, Luke 21, thank you. I couldn't remember the, the address. Luke 21. Um, and then, yeah, so I, the, the idea that God owns everything is, 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 is what matters. And then, of course, Psalms 24 is the same thing. It's the motivation of your heart that he focuses attention on. It's what is your heart? What is, what is, your, what is your motivation? That's where he's interested. That's his, his, his interest or his focus or his, his idea of what he's after. So, when it comes to this Teruma offering, what you're giving up, it, it's in the context of the act of giving is where he's focused on. Not necessarily the object being given, whether it's more or less. It's the act of giving, the desire to give. Not because you're going to get something in return necessarily, but it's the desire you love God enough and it's by your heart to choose to give. All right? Hopefully that makes sense. Uh, let's jump to the next topic regarding this, this, this uh, Torah portion. Uh, Daniel, just a, mo- just a oh, moment. Yes. One of the things that um, a observer noted is that money is actually an incredibly spiritual thing in that it has the value that you and others put on it. That's true. Because when you have, you know, for example, a crash in a currency, you can have stacks of it, but once people deem it to be worthless, that's, it is worthless. It's worthless. It's, <laughs> you, you might as well wipe yourself with it because it doesn't have any matter. And we saw right. like in Germany, yep. you know, yep. leading up to World War II, people were bringing wheelbarrows in mm-hmm. Venezuela. They're doing the same thing today. Yep. So when you're talking about money or things that are placed, values placed upon, right. you could say it really is an act of the heart mm-hmm. in your transactions or where is your heart? So when Yeshua is saying, you know, where your treasure is there, your heart, heart will be also. also right? That's an incredibly fundamental statement of all finances. So mm-hmm. when you're thinking about how you deal with your finances, it is a reflection of your heart and what's going on inside of it. That's a great point. I should be more careful my words because uh, if I choose out of my goodness of my heart to give God dirt, um, I don't value it to begin with. So it doesn't matter. It's worthless to him too. But if it's something that I actually value, I should be more careful by words. I have to personally value the object to begin with in some way, whether it be uh, food or money. I have to value it. If I give him something that I don't value, then it doesn't mean anything. I didn't really give anything at all. I should be more careful my words. Thank you for that. Um, yes, uh, Larry. Yeah, you have to make sure. Yeah, you're not, no, don't be upset by it. 
Yeah, I'm forced to do this. It's not a forced thing. Uh, that's one of the things that I like about this particular phrase that he chose is according to what their heart desires, what they desire with their heart to do. As opposed to other instructions, I, I, I pointed out earlier, this is independent of tithe, independent of the commanded offerings that are separate. Those are commanded things. This is a non-commanded event, what they choose to do. I just, I just feel like doing it because I love God. It's, they're, they're, it is within inside them that I desire to do this, not because it's some instruction, not because it's some requirement, it's because I desire it. Yes. Uh, um, I found in giving, I have so much stuff to give away, and people are like, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing this? Why are you buying that? Why? You know, it's like, because I have so much, it's like the more I would take out of my house and give away, more would come in there. I was like, where is this coming from? <laughs> it's so funny, you know, because... Yeah. And then some people won't receive either when you're trying to that give. That does happen too. Yeah. Some people feel, feel, feel awkward in the receiving end. And I, I, I do understand that. I, I won't discuss the nature of humans that way. saying not to put the ties in like we didn't need it. Yeah, it's unnecessary, right. That's amazing. You never hear that ever. I never heard that. So in the next, I will not have time to cover both furniture items that I wanted to cover today. So I'm going to cover just one of them. So some of the the details of it. Um, I'll, I'll try. I might be able to squeeze it. We'll see. Um, so I mentioned earlier about this box. The box. The box of, of, of the Ark of the Testimony. So over time, you can debate with this right or wrong. That's your decision. I, I'm not making a decision on this case. Over time, this box was given a name. And it was no longer called the Ark of the Covenant. Its new name over time uh, Yehovah Sabah. Yeshav Karuv. Spell this correctly. Curve. Yeah. Um, go to Second Samuel six. Second Samuel chapter six. The context as to where this concept or name came from. Now I will not say that uh, he invented the name because I don't think that's the case. Um, I believe others invented it or have been using it for quite some time. Second Samuel chapter 6. The box is a name. Now, it's important to note the nature of what we mentioned earlier, that the sanctuary that God said is so I can dwell with them, but God doesn't actually dwell in the sanctuary, does he? What dwells the sanctuary? The box. That's what dwells the sanctuary. The box is given a name. Second Samuel 6, chapter, chapter 6, it says that, Again, David gathered the choice men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up there from the ark of God, whose name is called by, by the name Yehovah of hosts, who dwells in cherubim. That's that phrase. Yehovah Tzavah Yeshavah Karuv. That's, that's what, the box actually has a name. Now, that's what the name of the box is given. Now, it's given God's name, a physical object 
that you can touch. Well, you can touch it, kill you. But <laughs> if you didn't kill you, because it's, it's holy, uh, it did kill the one guy, Uzziah, I think his name was. Um, it, 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 the box itself is given a name, and God's name is given on the box. Now, that's an interesting concept. Now, this is not a condemnation. There isn't a, uh, oh, this is an evil thing that, what, the, what, that, that he gave it a name. The point is the box has a name now at some point in time in history from the time which Moses had it made all through until David's, a name was now given to it. And I say that because I remind you that God himself doesn't dwell with them, but rather his box dwelled with them. So their idea of God is what's contained with inside the box, the Lord of hosts. So the box is now, with this point, it's called Yehovah Tzavah, the, 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 uh, the, the, the Lord of hosts. That was its title. Now we can say, but, but maybe they were referring to, you know, God's Lord of hosts. No, no, no. The Hebrew is very specific. <laughs> the box is called the Lord of hosts. And it should bring us to question when we see the phrase, the Lord of hosts, what is the concept behind that phrase? You've all heard the word Lord of hosts, right? You've read the Bibles a few times. And they have the Lord of hosts, Lord of the armies, the Lord of uh, the, the angels, or Lord of something similar to it, right? That's the idea we have behind it. Well, if this box received that name, and mind you, David's a prophet too, so he's, he's including, including his, he's throwing his hat into that name category grouping. The box is the name, so if we have a concept of, oh, the Lord of the armies, well, he's referring it more to the box. So the phrase comes with the box. So the concept of the box, the concept of the phrase are intermingled together. So what does it mean to be the Lord of hosts and the box? So does the box control everything? A representation of the universe. Okay, can you develop a little further? So if I'm an Israelite living in the time of uh, Moses and I see this box, my idea of the box is it has God's words in it and it's covered with God's atonement on top. And this is God's the concept I have of him, whatever ideas are. So this is my world. This is my viewpoint, because I'm living here in a shepherd tent, whatever. This is my viewpoint. As time progresses, what do I think of this box? What's going to come in my head of this idea, this, this words that are shoved inside this container with God's atonement is that one man's Kapoor on top of it. The creator of the universe. Um, it's like a micro... It's a representation of the macrocosmos to a micro little thing so that you're reminded who that is. So that's an important idea. So if we have an a, 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 a abstract idea of God, of what he is, it remains abstract, does it not? If I think, oh, God controls everything, doesn't mean a whole lot to me. If I say, well, God controls what I did three minutes ago, or the world around me that I can personally interact with, I can touch. That's my idea of God then. What I can see, 
what I can feel, what I can experience is who my God is. Hence the idea, definition, concept between the difference between a Jew and a Greek. The Jew experiences God. The Greek thinks about God. So when I have this idea of the Lord of hosts and it's a box, my experience defines what that is because I'm a Jew. If I'm a Greek, my concept, my idea behind what this could be is what defines my God. The two different ways of thinking about this. So when I have a Lord of hosts given a name, well, I'm thinking as a Jew, well, what did he do? What this Lord of hosts, what did the box do in history? What did it do? Well, it went to wars, it battled things, killed things, did lots of stuff. Beat up bad guys. What the box did. So I think Lord of hosts, I think the one who beats up bad guys and smacks me around when I do something bad. As opposed to the abstract idea of, well, God controls all things, love, joy, happiness, war. Overall, abstract idea versus the actual physical experience. Hence, how the name can migrate from the creator's name can migrate to a physical object that you experience. Yes, Anne. I'm wondering if um, the Philistines hadn't taken the, the box uh, at some point earlier than this name of God that came out of the, the box. I mean, you know, that they named the box after the name of God after. The Philistines had stolen the box. Well, they, they, it was they left behind it. and they captured, they captured it. it. Right. right, and so, um, you know, so then... The people saw, you know, Dagon was on the ground. His right, right. Off, the experience would right. off. So, so this big experience, and then after so many years, we have now the Ark, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, <laughs> and so, you know, the concept right. of open up the box and all, you Bad know, happen. everything happens, you mm-hmm. know. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, this is where... Some of it came from. Yeah, as far as, as where the ideas come from. This, this, that somehow the power is somehow associated, that God associated it with a box, and vice versa, people associated with a box. I'm not arguing that the box actually contained power. <laughs> My point is, humans' concept of God slowly drifted into what they perceive God to be. I bring this up because it, this is my, where I would have to end today on it, the idea of what these, of the fact that God says, don't make anything of heaven or the earth below and worship it. And what are cherub? I don't know what they look like, but what are they? Some kind of an angel type of thing. And that's the idea behind it. And God said, don't make any images and heaven above, but yet God then commands you to make them. So what did they do to it? They started to attach power to it. Yes. Uh. Well, another thing that reminds me of that, we have the two uh, Kerubim, Mm -hmm. which also got put two Kerubim to guard the entrance of the... So that also reminds me as the um, Garden of Eden, Mm -hmm. because he's guarding the Tree of Life. They were guarding the Tree of Life. Right. And right there, the Torah Torah is called the Tree of Life. Yeah, yep, 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 yep. So the, the, the idea, God reuses this idea of these two being uh, guardians, so to speak, of, of those tasks, those types of things. Um, the same concept that's described here, I don't have time to go through today, but it is in uh, the menorah's vision that Zechariah gets with the two olive branches, right? 
Those of you who remember Zechariah, I think it's 14, I think it is. I can't remember the exact, maybe it's not 14, Zechariah something. Zechariah chapter something. Let me see, it's, I think I wrote it down. Did I write it down? Maybe I didn't. Oh, I forgot to write down the exact address. But anyway, so Zechariah has his vision of the menorah, example of menorah, and he has two olive branches between it, one on the right, one on the left side, they feed it. Now there's a million and one interpretation of what those olive branches are. I can't tell you which one's right or wrong, but I'll give you what, the only thing that makes any sense to me is that what two individuals are ever anointed with olive oil? David. No, no, the king, and who else? The high priest, okay? So those only two humans ever anointed for anything is the king and a high priest. And what's a king and high priest's job to win their, with their country, in their people? What is their functionality? What, what represent and to guard and protect? Both the king physically, the priest spiritually. So they're supposed to take care of these things. So the same idea that God uses here in this box is also uses again with Zechariah's imagery of this, this, this menorah. So the idea that God, re, he reuses those, those ideas a number of times uh, in, in, in the behavior. I'm going to conclude with uh, a few details about this box, though. This box is great and all, and the people I believe or perceive may have started to attribute value to the box in, 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 in what it could or couldn't do, giving it a name and associate with some value in that even we have Eli's, Eli's time, obviously the same thing. They think it's, it's the power, the God has entered the camp. The Philistines said the same thing during that particular battle. They said, oh, the God of Israel has entered their camp. Yeah. It was a box. But they interpreted it as the God of Israel that entered the camp. So the Philistines associated the box as being God. The people gave it a name as if it was God. People treated it like it was God, though it was not. They've associated power to this thing. Now, don't be wrong. I'm not saying they're right or wrong about it. I'm just saying what they did. You can debate what's right or wrong. But in the nature of this, go to Jeremiah chapter, uh, chapter 3. Now, Jeremiah is given a whole bunch of credit for lots of reasons. Um, one, for the concealment of this box, because 2 Maccabees describes the fact that Jeremiah hid the ark and he concealed it with inside the territory of Israel and marked its location. But when the people came back 70 years later, the marks were gone. They couldn't figure out where he hid it. So it's been lost since Jeremiah did it. He stashed it somewhere. The Ark of the Covenant before Nebuchadnezzar came and swept it away. So he did this, but in Jeremiah's prophecy, he talks about certain things regarding this particular box. Um, jump down from chapter 3 to verse uh, 11. So it's Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 11 says, Then Jehovah said to me, Backsliding Israel has showed herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, backsliding Israel, says Jehovah, and I will not cause my anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, says Jehovah, and I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against Jehovah your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says Jehovah. Stop there for a minute. A history lesson. Northern Israel is already gone. They were captured and swept away. There's only a few small splatterings here and there that exist. 
the vast majority of Israel no longer lives in Israel. They live up in the Caspian and Black Sea territory. That's where they went to, the, the Mede-Persian territory, and then up in the Caspian territory. So when Jeremiah sends a message, he's writing it. He's being sent out to the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea, well, well those two regions where all the northern tribes of Israel is now located. So that's what he's, when he sends a message, that's where he's sending it to. He's not sending it to, you know, Samaria. There, there's no one left. They're, they're gone. Um, anyway, so let's just be very aware of what's being happening. So when God's saying that, um, that Israel is, has more, shows up more righteous than Judah, by Jeremiah's at the tail end of Judah's existence here, Israel is more righteous. That means Israel has, as Hosea pointed out, has repented in their new territory. Hosea says, he's going to scatter you out. And in the new place you're to go to, there you will repent. There you will return a new region, not, not here in Israel, but you'll, you'll be up in your new spots. You'll repent then. That's where you will return to God for, for, the, for the new up in the Caspian and Black Sea area. Anyway, so that's history lesson. That's what's going on. Now he's saying return. In verse 14, return O backsliding children, says Jehovah, for I am married to you. I will take you from one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and with understanding. Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says Jehovah, that they will say no more the Ark of the Covenant of, the, of Jehovah. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of, of Jehovah, and all the nations shall be gathered to it in the name of Jehovah to Jerusalem. They shall walk no more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land to the north of the north, to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. Stop there. So, in, in, so what's Jeremiah pointing out? This box that was so valuable with Moses, it will be meaningless, empty, unimportant, void, ignored, forgotten. Because it won't matter. What will matter? The box will not be a box. The whole city will be the box. <laughs> the whole city is going to be the box. So the box was, as Alma quickly pointed, is a small microcosm viewpoint, and God expands it eventually to the city of Jerusalem. Not yet, but he's going to be. And I point this out because I conclude with this concept and think about it. The dimensions we just read about in the tabernacle that mostly the tents were certain sizes. You know, they're 50 this sizes and all different sizes. When Solomon comes along, he doubles all his dimensions, makes them twice their size, so which, is, which means four times bigger, bigger area. He double the length, double the width, makes four times larger in its size. When King Herod came along, he approximately doubled Solomon's size. So each generation that had the opportunity to build it makes it even that much bigger. Herod was evil. He did a lot of evil things. <laughs> Herod was a lot of evil stuff. But what he mechanically, though, he mechanically doubled its size again, making it approximately twice the size of Solomon's, twice length and width, which means four times in volume, area covered, of Solomon's temple. What would we expect if it's built again? At least doubled again, <laughs> which means now you talk about the whole city. <laughs> well, the, 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 it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So each time the box started out fairly small 
And it gets bigger and gets bigger and gets bigger. Why is that? Because God's people grow. Right. Just the universe. <laughs> Things continue to grow. So if Jeremiah's pointing out, this box, which Jeremiah hides, is not going to be important anymore. The idea of what it taught us was, but the box itself isn't going to be because it's going to continue to get larger and larger and larger. Does that make sense? Hopefully it makes sense. Yeah, because all the people have to gather there. How are you going to gather there if the box is only so big, right? <laughs> the whole nations of the world, well, yeah, shove them all in there. We'll take turns. I'll take my ticket number 5 million. Oh, great. <laughs> Sir, survey number 43. Oh, crud. I have the next couple of years to wait. Uh, yes, Anne. <laughs> Um, yes, um, in Revelation, you know, he carried me away in the spirit. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And it gives all those dimensions all over. The gates were written on the names of right. the 12 tribes. And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. And then on, it goes on, and it did not see the temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the lamb are the temple. Right. It was, it was enormous. The whole, the whole city was taken that way. Yeah. So it's, it, 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 the idea that the concept of the box, what it's supposed to be, the testimony of God, his words, covered by his atonement that he makes you at one or cleans you with it, that's the idea of the box. The box then expands the whole city eventually. So it's still the same words, God's testimony, because as long as he survives, his words survive. As long as you're alive, your testimony exists. As long as he's alive, his testimony exists. The box goes from just his testimony, his words, to a larger and larger and larger scale. The box won't mean anything. Hence, when I started out here, to point you out earlier, these are furniture items. These are objects that Moses is describing, made of real things. They themselves aren't holy. Heaven, God is the one who decides what is and isn't holy. So Moses saw up in heaven, I don't know whether what God necessarily showed him, but Moses trying to recreate a small-scale version of whatever he saw, some miniaturized, some simplified version of it. So the idea of what we're trying to understand is that the simplified version Moses is trying to show us, we need to understand that God himself takes that simplified version and is going to be expanding it at a very large scale. Hence, the details. If he had 50 sockets or 50 of this or 10 cubits of that, whatever it is, though God may expand it, the detailed numbers mattered. He is, is expanding them via a proportional amount. I don't know what the portions are, but the dimensions still mattered. The details mattered. Hope it makes sense. Any questions or comments? I will not have time to cover the menorah today. That's something else. Uh, yes. Uh, sometime back that the box, the wood, the shittim wood, represents us, and the gold around it represents God. Yeah, so I've talked about that in the past too. Right, right, right. So there's, um, when you're discussing objects and uh, they're they're discussing it in our Torah, um, it it is uh, fair, in my opinion, this is is Daniel Lynch's opinion, that God uses certain things to symbolize certain stuff. So if we look at the tabernacle and the certain that he has gold in certain locations, silver in certain spots, copper in certain spots, linen in certain locations, wool in certain locations, colors in different spots, they mean something to him. 
They're not arbitrarily, ah, I feel like green today. No, they mean something. It's, it, it, it has a specific purpose and design behind it. And we can understand some of them, some of the really simple things. We understand the value of gold and purification. Okay, God obviously makes that as a holier object compared to copper. And we understand the object of, 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 of blue and red and purple. We know, what, we know what those are. Those are pretty simple things. And we have a general idea of linen versus wool. There's a general idea of what makes you hot versus what makes you cool. But beyond going beyond those, those basic things, you're going a little speculation a bit, actually a little, a lot of speculation, um, as far as what they can and cannot mean. So the, the sermon, it is valuable to understand that God's using symbols and using things and reuses them, um, but you can't hang your hat on exactly it means just this or only this. It clearly God uses or values gold higher than silver or in copper. Because, because the closer you go to him, the more gold there is, the further away you go, the more basic the metals become and the less pure they become. He apparently also values certain colors greater than others. Um, uh, blue has a associated with things that are, are within inside the holiest stuff. And then you have the reds and the, the purples that are less and less as you go away. So he values colors mean something to him and objects mean something to him and their value themselves which is independent of what we assign value to. We would assign high value to platinum, and God says it's dirt. <laughs> Who cares? It's nothing. I don't, I don't value platinum. I value you know, copper or gold, and copper is greater than this other metal is. But how could that be? Well, because he did. <laughs> That's just how he did it. Um, and we can't, you can arbitrarily say, well, I think this is more valuable than that, but God is the one who assigns value. Any questions or comments? Yes, uh, Larry. When he said, see that you do it the way that it was shown to you in heaven right. doesn't necessarily mean it looks like anything anywhere but what he wanted him to make. Right. And that's what, that, I think that's what he, exactly he did, is that whatever Moses saw, Moses tried to mimic whatever he saw in some, some capacity. Um, it, we learn from the Revelation story, the instructions there, that the physical objects that Moses saw are, are loosely repeated with inside the story of Revelation. I say loosely because in Revelation's story, they have those objects are actually alive things that move. So whatever Moses saw in his imagery, I don't know if what he saw was moving or not, whether it was alive and, I can't imagine a menorah walking around, but maybe it was. In God's court appears, these things are living objects, living beings that they're represented. So Moses trying to mimic that, Whatever he's seeing, he can't make a menorah alive. But God clearly, and he points out in Zechariah too, that's a living thing. That symbol, that whatever's in heaven is it's a, it's a moving spiritual object that can talk and can do stuff. So he could have just drawn him something that he wanted him to make. Oh, sketch it out. Oh, that's possible too. That's possible too. But God, but the fact that God reuses the symbols in Revelations and description, it does it does make you question. I'm inclined to think Moses did see something, as opposed to God just saying, "Ah, oh, make this or arbitrarily make that." Any questions or comments? I'll conclude with a prayer then. Almighty God, I Father, thank you for our Shabbat, our day of rest, our time to study and to learn, to listen. May we always appreciate the things you teach us, Father. May we follow the follow your will and not our own. Grant us peace and wisdom to know that you are in charge. We praise you and ask your blessing in Yeshua's name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. 
If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.